Welcome to ASRS's Journal of Vitreoretinal Diseases Authors Forum. I'm your host, Dr. Timothy Murray, Editor-in-Chief of JVRD. On each episode of the JVRD Authors Forum, I will interview innovative retinal researchers on their studies featured only in JVRD and how these studies will impact our patients' care in our clinics. Tune in to hear directly from investigators about the clinical implications of the newest and highest quality research in the field of retina. It's a pleasure to speak with our senior author, Dr. Jennifer A., who's presenting a case of gene expression profile class change in a case of aggressive recurrent melanoma. Dr. A. is a vitreoretinal surgeon and ocular oncologist within the Kaiser Permanente program, and it's a pleasure to have her join us. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So this was really a unique case. Can you take us through the the case report and really why this is important beyond this individual patient? Yes. So this was a 45-year-old patient who presented to an outside institution for vision loss. He was found to have a large choroidal melanoma in his left eye, and he elected for brachytherapy with an extraocular scleral approach for a biopsy. The biopsy came back with GP class 1A and PRAM negative genetics. And on subsequent visits, it showed that the melanoma was regressed and there was no metastasis to any part of the body. The patient was unfortunately lost to follow up for about nine months after that, but he returned to the clinic because he noticed some more uh, vision loss. He was found to have radiation retinopathy And because the eye was still really comfortable, he elected for medical management. He wanted to keep his eye and he was feeling fine. So he only was using drops at the time. Unfortunately, over the next six months, he noticed that his inferior sclera in the left eye was starting to turn brown. And it was getting more and more brown over just a really small period of time. But he was very scared to go back to his original clinic because he felt maybe they would still suggest surgery and he just wasn't ready for that. So instead he presented to our clinic uh, for a second opinion. On exam, we noticed a blind painful eye from a white cataract, neovascular glaucoma, and there was a brown lesion on the inferior sclera. The UBM showed a collar button lesion with with extraocular extension and a total retinal detachment. At that time, we had an extensive discussion with him and we decided for a nucleation. We discussed the case with Kyle, uh, with Castle Bioscien- uh, Biosciences to, and asked them to repeat the GEP, which they typically don't do in a, in a melanoma that's already been biopsied uh, for genetics because they we don't believe that it changes. Um, so they, you know, after discussing the case, they decided that they would do the genetics over again. The genetics came back with a GEP class 1B uh, genetics and PRAM wasn't reanalyzed. And as you know, that does show that he has a higher risk for metastasis at the five-year mark than a class 1A tumor would. Brachytherapy is probably the most common primary treatment for a mm-hmm. ciliocoroidal melanoma like this. So he had the right treatment approach. Um, and it, it sounds like he had recurrent disease with extraocular extension. Was it possible to know if that was through the biopsy site or was that an inference of, of the presentation? Do you have any idea? Mm-hmm. 
I think for us, that's an inference. The other thought is that it could be from post-radiation uh, sclerosis, but just the site of where the new, the melanoma was protruding from, it was very, um, you know, inferior to the sclera where the original biopsy was done. And even though it's only done with a 25 gauge needle, which is really small, I think it, that defect still allows for a tract for the melanoma to uh, grow through. But, you know, there's no way to know for sure. Right. And one of the things that's interesting, too, with a case like this is that when you biopsy first and you plaque over the biopsy mm -hmm. site, there's some feeling of assurance that you're radiating that potential tract anyway. So we've really thought of people that get biopsied without definitive treatment in a different way from people that get biopsied at the time of definitive treatment. And can you give me an idea of how often do we really think that patients can have recurrence of melanoma after brachytherapy? Is that a common event? Is that a rare event? What, what do you think? It's pretty uncommon. Some retrospective studies show it's really from anywhere from 1% to 17, I think is the highest that I've seen within five years. But usually within one to two years, you're going to see not really, people don't think it's a recurrence, but rather a failure of the brachytherapy in the first place, either you know because of poor positioning of a plaque during surgery, uh, the tumor was huge. This one is a lot bigger than Com's study was. Um, but it was still, you know, what we want to do when a patient doesn't want to nucleate their eye. And then the other thing I think that you've alluded to is how important it has been to follow these patients after treatment. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that a major part of this may have been that loss to follow up for this for this gentleman who wasn't getting ongoing care because neovascular glaucoma and a blind painful eye at least within our ocular oncology practice, is still a very rare event. So a nucleation mm -hmm. of a blind pain fly is rare. So I think we need to remember that even though we've definitively treated these patients, they're kind of our patients for life. Um, and, I, and I think that really behooves our, our practices and our patients. Do you feel that way also? Yes, I definitely agree. And I think, you know, there aren't set guidelines on how often you should see these patients. And I think that's really important. You know, in this case, you know, the first time that the radiation retinopathy occurred for the patient was nine months after the treatment, which, you know, isn't even a full year. And most people think, oh, it's, you know, within maybe right after the treatment, they're going to see them close up. But after that, they're like, oh, we can extend them out to a year. And really, that's probably too long of an interval. And then from that, from the time that he was at his clinic, and then he presented to us was only six months. And it's pretty, you know, a huge rapid progression of the melanoma that it had extraocular um, protrusion at that point. So I think it's really important, especially early on after treatment, that you're seeing them probably every two to three months. And then you can extend and probably lifetime. I probably wouldn't go beyond six months. And then tell me a little bit about the histopathology, because it's unique to have histopathology after brachytherapy. So what what did that tumor look like in the lab? So it was a, still a solitary lesion, uh, a melanoma that was arising from a melanocytoma. So that really solidifies for us that this wasn't a secondary melanoma that grew. It was the same tumor. Um, I mean, I don't think we could really know if this was a recurrence versus, uh, you know, it just wasn't fully treated. Um, but I think with the class change, that also brings in another interesting point. If it was a recurrence versus a failed treatment, why is there, you know, a class change there?
So what do you think the class change signifies? There's been some discussion that mm -hmm. aggressive residual tumor shows a more um, mutagenic phenotype. So mm -hmm. more like a class 1B or class 2, and you select for that failure profile when there is failure. That that seems to be potentially what could have occurred here, correct? Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I've never been in the lab, so I don't know exactly how they do everything. But, you know, looking at the uh, first studies that were done, it did show that even if the tumor is heterogeneous, that even if it only had 25% of the mutations were class two, it still was classified as a class two with their um, machines. So I think that's really important that even if there's a very small, you know, 25% of a tumor, the genetics that's really small, they still classify it within the higher class. So, you know, if this tumor at that time had class 1B genetics, even in a small portion, you would have hoped that it was classified as a 1B and not. And so the other thing you can think about is when you have a recurrence of the tumor, is it because the genetics are changing? And especially because this is really aggressive, is that why there's, you know, more mutations occurring, and then now the genetics of the tumor has gotten worse? Or is it, um, you know, or is it a fact of the radiation, you, ra you radiated the tumor, more mutations occurred, and then it became a worse prognosis? It's, you know, it's hard to say. And then for for gene expression profiling, of course, Castle Biosciences is the lab that handles that. And as you noted, they don't routinely want to um, retest, but maybe these are exactly the eyes that benefit from a, a reevaluation of GEP, either for evidence of metastatic disease or recurrence or an independent new tumor. Is that sort of your approach to these eyes? Yeah, I think so. And especially when you have like this patient within six months, it changed so much and the pathology showed it was the same tumor. If you think about it at five years, if you're class 1A, you really have no risk of metastasis, but a class 1B, you're around 20 some you know percent. And that's quite a lot. And even if it were to change to a class 2 and you're at 50% at five years, that's a huge, you know, emotional difference for the patient, how you might decide to surveil them in terms of like oncology. So I think these regressive, uh, these recurrent aggressive tumors definitely need to be um, GEP and genetics all, even PRAM, I think should definitely be repeated. So it's interesting because there's been some discussion about collapsing class one and no longer subdividing 1A and 1B. But I think your experience and this experience from this patient suggests mm -hmm. that that differentiation is really important. So I'm very hopeful that Castle Biosciences does not stop reporting 1A, 1B, because I think that has some significant historical ties to, to information and it has been very valid within our clinical yeah. practice. And I think, you know, you've seen it if you're, if you're an older patient, and you realize you only have a 2% at five years versus someone who has a 20%, you know, are you going to do as much you know, CT testing, if you're, you don't have the, you know, the body, you know, habitus to stay inside the CT machine or the MRI machine, whatever it is, um, are you going to go for that extra imaging if you know your risk is much lower? And I think that's really important. Thank you, because this is really one of the first cases that documents that transitional change, primary brachytherapy, secondary enucleation, class 1A, class 1B, and thankfully still an, an alive and well patient to this day. So, so, so much thanks for you for, for 
writing this for JVRD and, and knowing that this is in the January, February issue for them to look at more details and imaging. Um, but thank you for discussing this case with us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to the JVRD Authors Forum. You can watch and listen to more episodes on the ASRS YouTube channel and on popular podcast directories, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Visit www.asrs.org forward slash JVRD forum on the ASRS website to learn more. See you soon.